Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And my name is Eamon Murtagh. And today on the podcast, we're going to start things off by talking about love songs, but not necessarily schmaltzy, romantic songs of that oeuvre. We're talking about songs that remind you of the one you love, whether they're aware of it or not. And speaking of songs you love, we're going to go back in time to the great forgotten genre of go-go. And we're going to ask the mighty Zaff of Love Vinyl Records to tell us why this wonderful type of music seems to have slipped between the cracks that opened up between the end of the birth of hip-hop and the birth of the startup house. And we are absolutely tremendously excited and overjoyed to say that the living legend that is Brian Jackson, formerly of the Midnight Band, cohort and co-songwriter with Gil Scott Heron, legend of the rare groove, Brian Jackson is actually appearing on the show and he's going to share some of his phonographic memories with us and I have to say it's a dangerous thing when you meet your idols what a lovely man though oh what a what lovely, a lovely man. man and I love how you said the word tremulously there I know you meant tremendously it's I like that tremendously. I'm tremoring with excitement about speaking to Brian we'll keep that in because I'm going to keep that word yeah it's a great word that's Let's the thing about what together. goes around you don't just get news and interviews, you get new words. So, join me as we tremulously begin to pod. <laughs> Let's expand our minds and our vocabularies. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You should get that in a t-shirt. Is tremulously not a word? I thought tremulously was a word. I don't know, it might be a word. I'm just I'm saying I like it. I'm fucking look it up now. I, I thought you meant to say tremendously. <laughs> Before we go any fucking further, <laughs> I need to know. Well, DJ Anne Frankenstein, Lady Mayoress of possibly Manchester soon. What goes around? Don't give me notions before I even get there. <laughs> don't have to think I'm an arsehole. Yeah, but it would go so well with your disco rap persona because you, the, the mayors have all that bling, don't they? I like so you can that. have that big gold chain. I really like that. Yeah, actually, maybe I should be a mayoress. What do you actually have mm. to do? I don't think mayoress is, is an appropriate word just, anymore, is it? I think you just show yeah. up at you know theatres and stuff and say I declare this open and then watch stuff for free and but how do you get to volavons. be you do, I do like watching things for free um, and you like eating volavons I, I bloody well do <laughs> but I mean like how do you get to how do you get to be mayor I mean you don't just start acting like the mayor <laughs> maybe you do I think you do yeah I think that- yeah. You just, just convince people you're an important dude and then I've been doing yeah, that my whole life. You're, you're wearing red and have, you've got chains on <laughs> I think we're digressing anyway. Possibly slightly, possibly slightly. But um, yes, I guess I, 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 I sort of had a question for you, really, that mm-hmm. I, I, I've been reflecting on this because, you know, um, my lovely boyfriend, Tim, who I just celebrated, lovely my lovely Tim, who is hopefully going to come on this podcast and talk about his latest art project, which is very relevant yes. to our interests. Um, just as a little teaser, he's making a illustrated book of fantasy turntables. And uh, it's a very cool project. So we'll be talking to him soon. I'm going to embarrass the shit out of him on this podcast. But uh, <laughs> yes, five, he's, you know, five long suffering years he's spent with me. Oh, bless you. Congratulations <laughs> to the pair of you. You make a lovely couple. Thanks very much. But we celebrated our anniversary on Saturday. And I was just thinking, like, I'm always talking about, like, our song. Oh, it's our song. Sometimes we're in a shop and our song comes on over the radio. And I'm like, damn, it's our song. And, What's um, your song? Well, as far as I was concerned, our song is um, Hall and Oates. Uh, fuck, what is it called? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you make my dreams come true. Hall and Oates, you make my dreams come true. Aww. Because, I don't know, it was playing somewhere when we first got together. And I don't yeah. know, it just seemed like... The, you the, noticed that shit. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. The words seemed relevant. I feel a little bit tearful every time it comes on when we're out in public Aww. together. And I thought this was the thing that we had that was mutual. Turns out he's totally oblivious. And he's like, I've never heard this <laughs> song before. When I pointed out, he's like, this is not, how is this our song? I don't know what this song is. I don't know it. It can be a very dangerous thing picking the song as well, you know, because, yeah. well, if you can't remember it, then well, he's in trouble. Basically, I mean, we never it? had a mutual agreement about it, but I thought we were on a level where you if our song came on, like yeah. we would both recognise it. But yeah, he claims not to even know what the song is. So 
first of all, I guess we have to start again with a new song. And second of all, I was wondering if, I mean, I, I presume you and Lucy have a song because that seems like something you would have settled on quite early on in your relationship. But like, has there ever been a song that sort of, well, tell me what that song is. And also if there's a song well, that you associate with her that she, you know, isn't even aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, actually, because uh, all my life is... Uh, very much about planning songs and, and arranging songs and thinking about what the music should be in every situation possible. And weirdly, in my relationship with my good darling wife, Lucy, we don't really have that. Like we, we like a lot of music together and, and, and that sort of thing. But um, the things that... Um, well, the, a good example is um, we went away, we got married. Now, you'd think I'd have this amazing playlist of stuff that had to be played. But for that day, for that day, um, we just had no music at all. Because yeah, because it was just about us. You see, it's beautiful. So no we didn't music. have any distractions. Now we got married on a on a beach in Tobago, and um, there was no music at all, and it was just pure concentration on each other. It was lovely, and that's very unusual for me to say that. Yeah, I'm so, surprised you didn't need something going on in the I background. Know. To, I'm to... surprised. <laughs> that's shocking. So did you not have a first I, dance or anything? We had no no dancing at all on the night. Um, I, when I imagined it beforehand, I probably would have picked Forever in My Life by Prince would have been the one that mm. I'd have chosen. Mm. Um, but it just seemed um, we had very little distractions. There was only the two of us and two nice ladies we met there with our witnesses and a preacher who we we uh, wrangled in by the Internet who met us there. Um, so it was it was very, very small and very intimate. And, and we just didn't have any of that stuff. No music, no, no nothing. No, yeah. So. That's so. That's so odd. So you have no song you can look back on to sort of. Well, now you've got to remember okay, okay. That that's that's when we got married. Mm. But uh, we've been together like nearly twenty five years now. So mm. it's way back when we got together, there are two things that pop up in my mind. And this, I mean, I, I kind of don't want to mention it because these are two terrible, <laughs> uncool songs. Are they but, as uh, bad as Holland Oats? I mean, I, I, I've laid I my think, heart out think, on the line here. I think I'm going worse than, than Hall and Oates. Mm. I think. So the two things, first of all, when we were kind of giving each other the eye and, and sort of flirting around but hadn't really got together, um, Alanis Morissette appeared on the scene. Okay. And, uh, you know, that album came out and I got free copy from the shop and uh, I really dug it for a little while. Do you know what I mean? I was really into it. And then we kind of just bonded a bit over that. I wouldn't play it at all now I don't think I just don't think I'd have anything to do with it now it's not necessary but, uh, is it Alanis Morissette just isn't necessary anymore no no There's not no at all uh, and, but I had this weird brief infatuation with that album uh, which I think was more to do with spending time with Lucy than anything mm. else so there's that and then when I actually sat down I, I pretended I was going to Oxford and she was going to give me a lift and then when I got in the car I said can we go to the pub instead because I've got something to say um, and uh, we sat down and got some drinks and I sat down and I said listen you know for ages I'd, I'd kind of really been thinking about you and blah 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 I t poured my little heart out and told her that I, I had a flame for her and um, she was like oh me too and as as she was saying me too over the pub jukebox came how long has this been going on Aww. and it was just like oh man it was meant to be <laughs> But yeah, not the coolest, you know what I mean? I, now I, I understand why you, why you didn't have songs at your wedding. <laughs> it would have been the playlist from her. It would be like Drive Time in oh, 1990 yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. so weirdly, um, that is one area of my life where, uh, although we share a lot of love for music, I don't mm. think we really have a song that we would dare to play out in public. That's fascinating. I mean, so you yeah. might disagree. We did, did slightly bond over a love of alien sex fiend at the start, but again, that's I don't think that's cool. appropriate that's for a wedding. I've done no, maybe not, but that is how you know you find the right person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were in the back of a, in the back of a van, and alien sex fiend came on, and we'd loads of people. There's loads of people in the van. Uh, we were going to some rave somewhere. And uh, Alien Sexton came on, the thunder eyes come every morning. And uh, me and Lucy started getting mental and everyone else was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's our tune. I think I'd prefer that to the others. Yeah, I think but. you're probably quite right. And I think I need to find a new tune. I think Hall yeah, and so. isn't going to cut it anymore. Well, listen, listeners, if you have any suggestions for Anne and Timmer's special tune, <laughs> then uh, do write in and tell us. Yeah. 
leap. Tremulous, shaking or quivering. That's Maybe. True. I just thought you meant to say tremendously because that's that's a word I've heard you say before. Tremulously is a whole new whole new thing. I wasn't taking a piss. I really liked it. <laughs> Wedged in between the birth of hip-hop and the arrival of house music, there was another genre that burned brightly briefly, just before disappearing into the mists of time. Go-Go was a percussive form of funk that, despite being lauded by the critics and embraced by the underground, utterly failed to break through into the mainstream. Its influence, however, made a lasting mark on the world of hip-hop and electro. Weirdly, it seems that no one ever talks about this vibrant sound anymore. This sound that once ruled the club scene for a few brief, infamous years. Or we think it's high time we updated the history books. And so we asked the mighty Zap and the Love Vinyl crew to tell us all about the forgotten music that was his passion in the early 80s. Let's go, go, go! I'm Zaf, the mighty Zaf. Uh, I'm the owner, co-owner of Love Vinyl in Hoxton. Go-Go I first come across in probably about 1984. Go-Go was like the thing to be into at the time. I was just like hooked on it overnight. Learned about bands like Reds and the Boys, Little Benny and the Masters, Trouble Funk, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. Chuck Brown and Soul Searchers previous to that were a funk band. He was the elder statesman and called the godfather of Go-Go. Scene that only lived for, for probably you know a couple of years, but it was championed a lot by a lot of DJs and um, the music press and the, at the time uh, hyped it up. But it was very very niche and underground. It never really got over to, to the mainstream simply because it was probably too funky. I ain't got nothing against no credit cards, but the cash is the best. And I'm Mastercard. So Washington DC was the, was the home of Gogo. I went over to DC, I was lucky enough to go over to DC in 1986. That was when I was just getting into uh, finding out about Gogo. So I was lucky enough to, 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 well actually I was previously crazy about it, but it was my first chance to actually go to a place where it originated from. I remember coming back from there and going to a warehouse party and just, you know, Gogo was being played. Uh, alongside hip hop and and rare groove in those days, rare groove was what I was really into. Funk, should I say? And Go Go was that perfect fusion of funk and and uh, uh, hip hop. Compilations, you know, Jay Strongman yeah. was really into it, was in the face. It was a hell of a lot of press about it. You That's know. what I said when we'll I that point. It's, it's exciting music. I don't know what really, maybe it was just a bit too the same sound, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's like Bangra in a way, you know. Yeah.
a proper band with, um, you know, uh, like nine members. Because they, used, they had brass sections, they had like two or three of them, always had double drummers. You know, the live element was just phenomenal. It really was something else. I'm sure they're still going at it in Washington. Oh, yeah, yeah. But still, I'm sure they're still... Yeah, there's probably still a scene now, yeah. Got the ball. Y'all still I remember all the bands like Reds and the Boys, um, who were brilliant, they were really good. I never got to see them live. Chuck Brown obviously was the godfather of Gogo. I went to see him in 80, 86 in Washington DC, uh, supporting um, James Brown. Uh, Mass Extension, who actually did one of, one of my favorite ever um, Gogo tracks called Happy Feet which uh, was signed to Fourth on Broadway. A lot of the um, UK DJs like Dave Durrell, Jay Strongman, um, you know, they, they used to champion go-go. A lot of the underground DJs as well. Could go, you could go out and some some DJs remember you specifically say just go go all night. The other thing was um, record shops. So all the import shops used to have their go-go section and I remember going to Tower Records and and uh, and they used to have loads of uh, you know go-go imports like Trouble Funk albums. TTD as I said was like one of the main labels that they were a New York uh, sorry a Washington DC label. Because they were imports they were expensive but then uh, Fourth and Broadway started releasing them as UK and so I used to be able to get them cheaper. Yeah, so there was like TTD was was the, one of the main labels. Uh, EU was one of the uh, really good bands, and they they've been going since the early '80s. So you know, GoGo as a sound evolved from the early '80s from being kind of funk and a very percussive funk. EU was one of the first bands. Um, they had their own label as well. Experience Unlimited Records, GoGo USA Records. Uh, Red Door Entertainment, Mass Extension, uh, Rare Essence. Now they're a band, one of the groups that I wish I'd seen at the time but never got around to seeing. Because I don't think only only Chuck Brown and and uh, and Trouble Funk ever made it over here. I think I'm not aware of any other go-go group coming over. literally too too funky I think it literally honestly when you think about it it was uh, and it was because it was from one certain part you know from Washington DC it was very niche it's uh, it's difficult to kind of um, say why it didn't really take off uh, and it was it was very very short-lived as well very short-lived you know two three years three four years and then people forgot about it they tried to commercialise it, you know, and it wasn't a commercial sound at all. That was the thing. We're going back 30, 30 nearly 40 years, yeah. like, you know, it's not far off.
fucking hell, man. There's memories. <laughs> Seriously, I haven't, I haven't heard this for years. <laughs> What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. Today we are genuinely delighted to have an American music legend on the show. Brian Jackson is a flautist, keyboardist, singer, songwriter and producer responsible for some of the most iconic and important compositions of the 20th century as far as I'm concerned. A celebrated solo artist in his own right, Brian has also worked with the likes of Roy Ayers, Earth, Wind & Fire, Will Downing, Gwen Guthrie, Cool & The Gang and The Alabama Three. But Brian is perhaps best known for a decade of incredible creativity alongside Gil Scott Heron and The Midnight Band. With songs like The Bottle and Winter in America, he helped shape the American psyche in the 1970s, and those songs remain as poignant and relevant today as they ever did. The double album It's Your World remains the finest live recording ever committed to vinyl, as far as I'm concerned, and Brian remains committed to music to this very day, over half a century in the business. A year or so ago, I spent an entire week air punching because uh, you liked one of my Instagram posts, Brian, and I'm still getting over that. So I'm absolutely blown away to have the opportunity <laughs> to talk to you in real life today on What Goes Around. Welcome okay. to the show. Thank you. And, and uh, I, I'm glad I heeded your warning and, and sat down. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to don't want to knock you off your feet straight away, but you know it's, it's good to be prepared. That yeah, much flattery all at once. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, it's lovely to speak to you, and thank you so much for coming on. And it's amazing that you actually have your first album out in twenty years on the Jazz Is Dead label, which is in conjunction with Adrian Young and Ali Shahid Mohammed from a tribe called Quest. And uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that project, because there's been some amazing um, records already released on that label with Roy Ayers and others getting involved. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came about? Absolutely. Um, I think I was probably one of the among the first um, of the uh, elder artists that uh, they, they, they reached out to. Uh, I mm -hmm. know that they were, were looking to, um, to liaise with some uh, some old school art musicians such mm -hmm. as Royer, such as Gary Bartz, Joao Donato, um, <clears throat> Doug Kahn, Azimuth. Uh, yeah. You know there was uh, there were so many uh, artists that uh, were involved were involved in this, and I just happened to be the first one. I was invited <laughs> out at the time I was living in in Brooklyn, and uh, uh, Drew uh, and the, the Jazz is Dead folks and uh, invited me out to do a concert at uh, in los angeles while i was there they they, they floated the idea that maybe i would uh, could go into the studio and and do a little work with uh, with adrian and ali who had been preparing some some tracks and uh, as it turned out uh, i don't know if anybody who's been to uh, adrian's studio knows that adrian has kitted this place out like you would not believe i mean mm. everywhere you turn you you're going to be careful so that you don't step over another instrument. I mean, <laughs> a harpsichord, for goodness sake, he has in there. You know what I mean? Wow. Just, <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on. So your creativity, uh, there, there, is no, there is no limit to what you can do. And I, while he was playing a track, I happened to notice that there was a, an alto flute over in the corner, which is one of my favorite instruments that um, I didn't have at the time. Mm -hmm. I've since gotten one because I had so much fun with his after playing it five minutes it was just a thing about it was just a thing of hey why don't you just go to the mic out there and you know and start start laying down some stuff so a lot of this uh this album contains um alto flute mm -hmm. as well uh, as my my old uh friend and nemesis the mini moog and uh <laughs> uh <laughs> and uh my my first love the the fender Rhodes. Of course, yeah. Well, I'm really curious because, you know, you say you were the first people that they approached for this project. And like, this is Jazz is Dead number eight. So like you say, we've had Roy Ayers, we've had Marcus Valle, we've had Gary Bartz uh, release previous editions. But if you were the first person that they that they approached i mean how did they sell it into you because obviously this is your first album for a long long time did adrian just say i've got a harpsichord in my studio <laughs> <laughs> want to see my harpsichord <laughs> I mean, that would be 
be enough, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it would actually, but um, no, it it just happened that uh, you know, I wasn't. We, there were some other commitments that were that were happening at the time. We didn't know how, how the timing would be affected by those mm-hmm. those things, um, and so I just uh, out of an abundance of a cost of caution we thought it would be best that uh, that you know that we we wait until everything until all was clear mm. it must have been excellent so feeling i'm oh, sorry it kind of worked out good for me yeah it was it, it worked out well for me you know because uh i always like to i always like to to end the uh end the show if i can <laughs> yeah well i was gonna say it must be such a such a lovely feeling looking back at a queue like that and seeing all those people that behind you. exactly exactly i mean it kind of legitimizes me more than you know yeah. more than anything um and it's not i mean i say it's the last but obviously it's not going to be the last it's the, it's actually the beginning of um of a great of a great label and yeah, you can expect yeah. a lot more yes, from indeed. them what do you think yeah. of that title jazz is dead because i know um <laughs> Gary Bartz, when he spoke about it, was a big fan of that title because of the fact that he doesn't like the term jazz. I mean, how do you feel about that that term and and that label name? Well, that's exactly uh, that's exactly the point. Mm. Um, there are a number uh, there are a number of ways that you can look at it. Number one, yeah, jazz has been dead because of the the actual terminology of it, you know the phrasing the the word jazz. Um, I won't I won't belabor what I feel is, is the derivation of it. Jazz is, is, is a constantly evolving uh, process. It's a constantly evolving music and a constantly evolving tradition. And it, it's kind of unfair to, to the music, um, to, which is the only indigenous, truly American art form mm. that exists here. And uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, there, there are other names that could probably, could probably be attributed to it. Billy Taylor once called it the um, uh, American classical music. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't call it anything. You know, it's it's music. It, it's good music. It's or or it's not. Um, yeah. Just like every just like every other art uh, and every other work. Uh, you know, but jazz is dead. It's definitely a provocative. You you have to admit that it definitely <laughs> yeah. gets your attention. I mean, I, I work for a radio station called Jazz FM, so every time I have to announce this, I'm just like, <laughs> jazz is dead. Polarizing title. Well, well, good. <laughs> You're going to do yourself out of a job, Andy. <laughs> yeah. If it were up to me, we'd change the station name. I don't have that much power, unfortunately. Well, how about Jazz is Dead FM? No. <laughs> yeah, that'd do. That'd do. So if, if, listen, if Adrian lets me play his harpsichord, yeah. I'm all about it. We'll do anything How about it? How about it? <laughs> so, listen, it's such a long time since you recorded an album. I mean, yeah. did you... I mean, obviously it came about in an unexpected way, and there you were. And I mean, they must have thought this is a long shot. You know, he's he's been off the scene for quite a while, and th- for for an artist, I'm sure who hasn't recorded anything, I'm, I'm sure you've been doing music little bits and bobs all the time, yeah, of absolutely. course. But um, absolutely. but for someone who hasn't actually committed their name on the front of an album for quite a long time, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there must have been quite a lot of I don't know internal anxiety or pressure, or did you just feel like no, let's just head to the studio? Did you have a big plan, or did you just show up and start playing the flute? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, I just, um, I wasn't, uh, th- there wasn't any trepidation in, in my mind. First of all, uh, I felt like I was in sync with, mm-hmm. um, with Adrian and, and with Ali. I, I've, you know, I've been a fan of their work for, for a long time. So mm-hmm. it wasn't, it, it wasn't a completely um, unexpected what I, what I came, what I came in to do. Also, mm-hmm. um, you know, like like you said, I, I have been doing work with uh, with artists. I've been touring, you know, over the years. I've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of playing, actually. Mm. Although it just hasn't been committed to uh, to to wax. But yeah, I, I felt very comfortable. I, I feel that over the years, I've I've really kind of um, come to a, a kind of peace with um, mm. with what I do. And That's so I, I can do it anywhere, <laughs> at any time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even on still... a harpsichord. <laughs> <laughs> and you still uh, got a great love for actually playing live and stuff, because I know a lot of artists, they get to a stage and they just think, oh, another tour bus. I don't, I don't know if I can be doing with this anymore, you know. Do you I still, know, still know. get that buzz for it? Do you still want to get out there and, and, and get in front I, of people? I do. I do. It's, it's probably improv- Improvisation is probably my, my favorite form 
of um, of music of of the music right now. And uh, whenever I get a chance to do that, I'm I'm actually in heaven. I mean, I did mention at the start of in my little intro uh, the double album "It's Your World," which uh, honestly is my favorite live album ever made. Oh, I think, I think it's just it, you know in terms of the whole band and the recording. So often you get a great a great night's concert that just doesn't make it. It doesn't sound right when it gets to the record. And that's one of the ones where just everything comes together and the arrangements and the fluidity in some of the, the some of the tracks, certainly the 30 minute version of the bottle, I still play out every other week when I'm DJing. So, it, you know, it always works and it always gives me a chance to go to the bar because it's so long. <laughs> well, you know what? The interesting thing about that is uh, about that album is it kind of it, it was kind of the converse for us because um, after having recorded a few albums, people would always say to us, you know, the albums, the, uh, the live, the uh, studio albums are good, but they still have not mm. captured your your live performances. And, I, you know, listening back and reflecting on that, I, I would have to say that that, that was true. Mm. And so we, we sought to remedy that by, by doing uh, It's Your World, which, as you, you noted, is a double album. One of the uh, records is, is, in the, is a studio album, and the other one is a, is a live album. And so I guess we kind of, it was kind of a challenge, like, okay, which one, which one works better for you? And as far as I'm concerned, the live one definitely works better, better for me. I, I hope to be doing more, more live recording. There's something about live when people are, are in their element and, and when the, the people who are there, the listeners actually add to the music. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a, there's a joy that comes off some of those recordings, which I don't. I mean, you can play as well as you can possibly play and sing as well as you can possibly sing in a in a dark room in a studio somewhere. But there's like a frisson of tension in an atmosphere in a live room, and you can feel the energy that comes off the crowd and goes from the band. And if you know, like I say, if the recording's right, then you can capture something really special. And for me, like I've, I mean, I've heard a lot of live albums over the years, and I think. For, for a real concert sound, that one absolutely nails it for me. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know a lot of actors who prefer to 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 do Broadway than they than they yeah. do a movie. I mean, the process is completely different. You know, it's not it's it's not intuitive. The process of recording or 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 uh, you know making a film, and uh, yeah. so you, you know you you lose a little bit of this of the sponta- spontaneity, and that's something that you always want to you know, want to amplify as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Well, let's dig into your to your phonographic memories. We want to go back. And I'm curious, before we talk about your first track, so you were born in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, which is like now synonymous with hip-hop culture. I know like Biggie Smalls was born there, Jay-Z, and you often mm-hmm. hear people talking about Bed-Stuy in that way. D- did it mm-hmm. feel like a sort of hub of, of creativity to you? D- like from obviously you know you grew up to be a um a musician like is there something about bed sty that sort of stimulated that in you well i in me it it was stimulated by my by my parents it was mm. always music playing in my home there was always jazz or or sometimes the occasional um classical european um music playing mm. as well um, but there was always music playing in in my home. I grew up; it was surrounded surrounded by it, and I think that was a common experience among a lot of uh, a, a lot of my friends, a lot of kids that that I grew up with. Mm. You know, and and as well, uh, there were a lot of musicians who also made their home in in Brooklyn. Freddie uh, Freddie Hubbard, in fact, and Louis Hayes um, were right down the block from me. Uh, I used to sneak. I used to like hide behind trees to see if they would, you know, just to watch them come out, you know, just to see what they what they were wearing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lou, oh, Lou, Nas's dad lived right around the corner and uh, we were more or less contemporaries, you know, and, and he had just uh, he had just started uh, playing, pro- playing professionally. Uh, you know, I think there were just a lot of musicians who made their home. Uh, in Brooklyn, and mm. in, in New York, obviously, but but in mm. Brooklyn as well, and and so I, it was a great it was a great place to to be exposed to music, and and I even when I was sixteen or seventeen, Miles Davis even came to uh, 
um, a club called the, uh, what was it called? I think it was called Blue Coronet. So right there, and I just had to go a few blocks, uh, accompanied by one of my dad's friends. And I, I went to see Miles and and, uh, wow. and uh, Dave Holland and Jack DeJanet and Chick Corea and Wayne Shorter. Oh, my wow. goodness. That was I was like, so... I was 10 feet away from them, you know? Good. Miles is your first phonographic memory. You picked Walking, which is a, quite an early Miles tune. Talk to us about this one and, and uh, the memory associated with it. I think that, you know, the thing that really grabbed me was the blues. Um, that, 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 that blues form is, is something that just really stuck with me. And, and uh, the, the, the solos on it were so deceptively simple, particularly, how, um, particularly Horace Silver's solo. Um, it, was, it was melodic, um, but it's, it, it swung. And it made me think to myself, well, yeah, I play piano. By that time, I had been playing for about four years. And my whole intent, actually, was to be able to play jazz music. And you know, at the mm-hmm. time, they told me, oh, you know, you have to study uh, the classical European form before you can do that. And, yeah, so so I, I acquiesced and I, I went along with the program. But after four years of, of you know, of playing my scales and, and uh, learning how to read, and I thought to myself, this is a guy I could probably emulate. You know, but I couldn't, certainly wasn't going to be Ahmad Jamal. <laughs> you know, if I had only heard people like him, I probably would have never even started to play piano. But um, it was people like Horace who made, who made it feel like it was accessible. And so that album was, was my go-to for inspiration, if nothing else. Fifty-four, wasn't it? And uh, that really was yeah. for me, like the, the you know the, the 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 golden age of cool jazz from about fifty-four <laughs> to about nineteen sixty. You know, all Miles Davis, especially at that time, was just absolutely on fire. I mean, um, Bags Groove came along shortly afterwards, and of course, Kind of Blue yeah. eventually came. That era, it wasn't just though about that kind of cool sound. These are cool looking people as well. I mean, there was a there was a fashion <laughs> and a feel about the whole thing, wasn't there? Totally. And, uh, you know, it all had, it, it was all intertwined. You couldn't, you couldn't possibly remove Miles' persona or his image from the music. And yeah, that has to do with, with so many of the musicians at that time. Max Roach, for instance, is another big influence on me. In fact, I wanted to play drums at first. Um, when I was about five or six years old, I went up to my mom and I said, Mom, I want to play music. And she said, great. What do you want to play? And I said, drums. And she was like, no, what else? <laughs> Very wise. Not in this house. <laughs> not in this house. <laughs> you ain't got a garage. You're not playing the drums. No, we're not being, we're not on the street. You and your, you and your drums and all of us will be out on the street. You know, so, no. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. So she, she, she climbed down and let you, let you play the piano then. That was, uh, that was the compromise. Yeah, yeah, that was number three. That was number three. That was the third oh, because oh. next was trumpet, you know, um, yeah. along the lines of Clifford and Miles and all of those, those great trumpet players. And no, that was, that was a veto also. So we ended up, we, we finally, uh, <laughs> we finally yeah. ended the negotiations. Yeah, the, the roadblock with, uh, with piano, which was, were, hey, were, I mean, it was fortunate. Were they excited about the prospect of you being a musician or were they like, did they, did, were they encouraging of the prospect of you doing it professionally? You know, the, the, the subject never really came up. I, I didn't know that I wanted to play professionally. Um, what, what happened was that when I was studying with my, my music teacher, when I got a bit older, she gave me a scholarship because uh, my, my mother could no longer afford to, to pay for the lessons. Mm. Um, mm. 
and she she said, "Well, you know, I see promise in you, and uh, music is a good is is a good thing to be able to play, and uh, you you have the ability to to play music well, and so I'm I'm going to keep you on as a student, uh, and just offer you you know a, a, a lifetime scholarship." And she also added at that point, um, "When you get to college." Music is going to be a way that you can maybe make some extra money, and so I always remembered that. And when I got to uh, I got to Lincoln, I, I took her to heart, and I ended up in three bands, all of which made money. My mother would call me up on the weekends and say, um, "Do you need anything? Can I send you a care package?" And I'd be, "Ah, no, no, I'm I'm going to go down to the I'm going to go down the down the road and get a you know get a, another hamburger hoagie like I was I was getting it because I was loaded." <laughs> <laughs> That makes a nice no, but, change uh, but, from many musician stories, I have to say. Yeah. That's, that's lovely. <laughs> and of course, yeah. that's where you where you met Gil Scott Heron as well, isn't it? The, that's that's where I met. That's where I met Gil. And again, we had no idea that uh, we were going to do this as a as a career. We just felt that um, let's write some beautiful songs. Let's write some beautiful music together. And a la the uh, the Tin Pen Alley writers, um, we thought we'd be able to to farm our songs out. And mm. just sit around and collect the royalty checks. <laughs> sounds but, good. Uh, once, well, it sounds great, right? But uh, then when we started looking, inspecting our lyrics and uh, some of our some of our themes, we thought, well, wait a minute, now who are we actually going to get to do this? Mm. And uh, you know, so the only person, the only people that came to mind were were ourselves. That's amazing because obviously the the integrity that you had in terms of what you were writing. I mean, you could have changed the lyrics and turned them into Tin Pan Alley pop songs, but presumably I never if... thought of that. Now you tell me. Where were you fifty years ago? <laughs> Thank goodness you didn't think of that. Yeah, but, absolutely. You know, obviously you felt there was a, an important message that you you had to get out uh, into the world that, that other people weren't weren't putting across at the time. There was a need for it, and uh, you, you know, I, I feel that if we had just gone the route of so many other great writers, and I mean there are so many other great writers um, who 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 write about love and write about personal feelings and and you know write about you know I think I don't want to say cliched things because I mean all of the all of these emotions, every emotion is important. Every sentiment yeah. is important. Every experience is important, and it's important that there is there's music or that there's a song that that addresses it. But what yeah. we felt was that there wasn't an, there weren't enough songs about the experience of being um, a young black man in America, yeah. or or being a young black person in a, in America. And uh, this is what we knew best. We were still kids. We didn't know anything about about love or any of that stuff i mean you know the kind of love that people wrote about back you know at that particular time we didn't know about that but what we did know about was what it was like to live in an urban center uh yeah. and, and 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 what was happening we could see happening in our in our country and how close we were to uh the the pro some of the prophecies of say for instance george orwell and with his, in his book 1984 mm. and thought maybe it's a good idea if we write about that and kind of alert people and, and just make, you know, do a, let's do a, a reality check here and, and see where is everybody? Where are we? You know, and, and those of us who can see it, maybe this could be a, a, a force for, for unification. Mm. So were, whilst you went down that much more serious and thoughtful route, I mean, did you, did you have a, a great feeling for like, you know, popular music in terms of just, I mean, did you, were you into pop? Were you into the, the kind of pop sound? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, from, uh, I mean, I think my first experience with pop were, let's talk about my second choice. Yeah, which let's was, go to your uh, second where did, choice. Where yeah. did our love go? <laughs> where the did Supremes. our love go? By the, by the Supremes, you know, I'm the, I was a big fan of the Motown sound after I discovered it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that led me to, to the stacks, to stacks, and Eddie Floyd and Otis mm -hmm. Redding and um, and Isaac Hayes and 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 uh, um, Sam and Dave and there uh, there's so many which led me which led me to Chess which led me to Chess yeah. Records and led me to so many artists that uh, who were doing great things at the time and and let's and right after that the year after I bought Where Did I Love Go Meet the Beatles and you know yeah. it's a whole nother sensibility about songwriting again. So mm. I, from from Tin Pan Alley to these great writers um, 
from from all walks of uh of walks of life from all different genres uh it was such a creative time and i was so happy that to have been to been raised in a in a time when there were so many examples of people writing music in in so many different ways and and being so good at it and being so effective how did that mesh with your sort of feelings about yourself as a as a jazz musician because having grown up with all of these serious jazz musicians around i mean was stuff like the Supremes and the Motown sound on their radar? Is that something that you were able to kind of reconcile with the idea of being taken seriously as a as a jazz person? I, I didn't care at all. It didn't bother me Good at all you. because, you know, um, I liked what I liked. Yeah. And uh, you know, um, um, quite famously, uh, Duke Ellington once said, um, there were only two kinds of music good music and bad music mm-hmm. and and for me i i kind of would like to I, I i kind of turned that and paraphrased it a little bit and what i say is there are only two kinds of music the music you like and the music you don't like and that's, uh, that's, 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 like that's that where I'm, that's where i come from yeah. you know and that's mm-hmm. where i come from. i think that's what he probably meant anyway yeah. um and I, I i never have limited myself by what i think people think i should like or what I should yeah. be influenced. If I did that, I probably wouldn't have ever been able, we probably, Gil and I would have never been able to write the music that we wrote. Um, we yeah. were open to whatever was out there to to like and to and to love and to internalize. When I listen to um, a song like uh, Where Did I Love Go by the Supremes, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm from a, a, a slightly later time, so it's already in the fabric of society. It's already on adverts. So it's kind of something that's just always been there for me. But, you know, every now and again, I'll put on a Motown album and you realise the absolute perfection of those two, three minutes. And and the way that must have sounded to you the first time you heard it. I mean, the the musicianship and the arrangement and the vocal, the whole thing is is absolutely perfect, isn't it? What did that sound like to you when you first heard it? It sounded like being at a... um... You know, at a carnival, you know, it sounded like being uh, at an at an amusement park. I mean, there was so many things, so many exciting things going on. It was almost over overwhelming. Listen to a song like "Tears of a Clown," for instance, or mm. uh, or um, any uh, songs by My Girl from By the Tations. I mean, there's so many. They're so beautifully constructed. Um, and I, I didn't even have a, a producer sensibility then, but this is what I was was actually hearing. I was hearing the production of it and I was hearing the the clarity of the of the instruments. And to be able to do this, I mean, now from in retrospect as a producer, listening to how they were able to put all of that music into one speaker, because most of us only had one speaker to listen to from, uh, is is still an amazing feat. credit that uh, that sound and and that production I mean has that been influential on you throughout your career and at, at that time when you're making music with Gil was that an influence absolutely absolutely um from 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 Motown to like I said to to Stax so we used to drive up and down the, the east coast listening to Al Green Clarence Carter <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, these, are, these are the things that uh these are elements of music that we always wanted to make sure to somehow um, encapsulate or incorporate into our own sound. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I'm curious. I just want to go back to to this idea that you guys started writing songs together um, on subject matter that was familiar to you. And that was the reason why you started writing. I mean, when that stuff started landing and becoming so influential and resonating so much with people, was that a surprise to you? How did that how did that feel when it started sort of finding its audience? I, I can't even tell you because I don't I can't pinpoint the exact time mm. that it happened. Um, I just at some point much later on, I would have younger friends tell me, hey, you know, we all listen to this. You know, did you know so-and-so just sampled this record or that record? And I, I, I was completely oblivious. I'm like, huh, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, I, I felt that uh, when, when we were doing the music, there was a great, uh, we, we had a great, we had great support. Um, when we would go to shows, um, we would often, often sell out. Uh, we did a lot of colleges, a lot of colleges, probably more so than than any other gig was the the college gig that kept us that kept us working. And so that didn't surprise us so much because of the fact that what we were talking about was a bit cerebral sometimes, you know, maybe. Um, and we kind of expected that. Uh, but as, we never really expected a, a, a wholesale buy in from uh, from. Uh, a greater a greater audience than you know when you we start somebody tells you that uh, oh yeah you know they they just took a, a quote from the revolution will be televised to sell Nikes I mean you know that that wasn't a, <laughs> that wasn't a high point to me you know but it was it was interesting yeah yeah, yeah well yeah. how did you feel about or you know a lot of musicians have very mixed feelings about the whole hip hop thing coming along and and sampling and remaking tracks out of pieces of music that have been made by other people. I mean, did you find that some people find it a real compliment and um, um, some people, you know, get very angry and, and annoyed that anyone should steal their moment. And the ones that get paid generally seem to be a bit happier. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, I, what I can what I can say is that uh, none of the old jazz musicians came at me with a stick. You know, mm. I mean, I um, I, I stole a lot of of, uh, of what I do from from those who came before us. Um, yes. And, you know, the only difference is that because I was actually playing, yeah, nobody actually associated that. Um, yeah. like for instance, like uh, whatever I what I picked up from from the people who, who have influenced me, um, you can't hear it. I can hear it, mm. but you can't hear it because it comes through. It comes through my filter. You know, and it comes through my limitations, you know, as, as well as, as my own uh, interpretations. Um, sampling, unfortunately, doesn't give you that, that cloak of anonymity. <laughs> you know, it doesn't give you that. It kind of lays it all out there. Oh, that's who you're trying to, you know. And so it's, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to, to hide that. But it's still the same process. And let's face it, sampling was around long before there was a sampler. Uh, with musique concrete, concrete, you know, I mean, there's, yeah, there's yeah, always, yeah. Uh, there's always been sampling. Um, uh, one one composer will will incorporate elements of another composer. This has gone on from, from the beginning of time. Why be angry about it? It's part of the process. Yeah, that's a really nice way of looking at it. And I think, especially from a jazz point of view, I mean, I always say that jazz is the one genre where you know standing on the shoulders of giants and learning from your elders and the elders actively participating with the younger members of of the scene is really important and it helps whole thing to constantly evolve and i think um sometimes you, when, when people use the sample you know they, they talk about actually lifting a sample that that grates on people but of course you're right because everyone who played in a jazz band has played a standard and that standard was played by somebody else before them, and so on and so on. What is the difference? Yeah, what is the difference between stealing, like between quote unquote, stealing a bunch of Charlie Parker riffs or a bunch of John Coltrane riffs, or mm. a bunch of uh, 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 Ben Webster riffs, or you know, or, or, uh, or Fats Navarro riffs? I mean, you know, what is the what is the actual difference there? Um, it's all part of of allowing you to steep yourself in the tradition. And to carry on and to move and to move on, and this this is a, a necessary process. I and, and I want to be 
one of the elder musicians who who makes who makes sure that he passes on he or she passes on the tradition to whomever uh to whomever is is has picked up the mantle to move to move forward we talked a little bit about there about the the supremes and and the motown sound and how sharp and tight that all was and what a revelation it must have been at the time and we had yeah. um Labby Sifri on the show uh, a little while back and uh, mm -hmm. he was talking about the songs that really changed his life and the way he thought about music and one he mentioned was uh, Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix which is your third phonographic uh, oh. memory All right. and he was just saying you know uh, you can forget almost anything else that Jimi did afterwards and he did a lot of amazing stuff but he just said when that came out he just felt like it was completely alien, like it had just arrived out of nowhere. And the way he played the guitar on there just changed the way people looked at the guitar. Is Did you have the same sort of feeling at that time? I Man, I have to agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, <clears throat> and then on closer inspection, when you realize that it's the blues, that, yes. that he's basically, he's just basically uh, playing the same blues that 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 we have uh, been so uh, so used to and have fallen so in love with, with a with a huge amp and and a bunch of you know a bunch of processing on the on the sound to just make it sing a little bit more and just make it just make it a little bit edgier, um, but it's still the blues and and I think Jimmy would have would have told you that. If anything, he's he's a blues player, and and you know how many more people did were were influenced by the blues? How many more people were uh, were were spurred on, were led on to listen to some of the original blues masters because of Jimmy? remember when I was learning guitar and I, I wanted to learn bass and my guitar teacher was like if you want to learn bass you have to learn this because he wanted to sh give me a shortcut oh. to the sort of fundamentals of the God. blues and so he taught yeah. me the bass solo <laughs> from HO <laughs> which yeah like you say I mean that that led me back in time to you know back exactly. to Highland Wolf Muddy Waters and then beyond that you know the blues people masters of the early part of the 20th century so exactly, exactly yeah he kind of joined the dots there were you a big jimmy fan did you associate with him at all at the time did you meet him i wish i had um i'm trying to remember maybe this is a dream but i i think he played at uh, in new york at new york uh at a new york college one time in an auditorium um and i don't remember the the uh, the auditorium and it was an auditorium in uh in manhattan it, might have been NYU or some somewhere like that, mm -hmm. and I just remember that the sound was so loud <laughs> <laughs> that I loved it. You know, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was it was just unbelievably loud. I mean, you could barely you could barely make out anything that was happening, but it was just so exciting. 
and uh you know and but the, the place was packed it was filled to the gills i just barely i was squeezed up against the back wall um and it was hot it was like the summertime and everyone was just like pouring down sweat and as soon as you know as soon as i couldn't take it anymore i just i just kind of released myself you know i was expelled <laughs> by the heat um <laughs> but yeah I, I had seen him for for a couple of minutes yeah, I think Jimmy was very much, uh, you know, he was it's kind of uh, pivotal, really, in, in the way that concerts happen now, because he was one of the first of those artists that actually really invested in the rig. You know, he, he got he actually yeah. got a special rig made by Marvel and the, the actual size of those speakers and, and carting them around. I mean, that was kind of unheard of <laughs> in those days, because I guess when he started, we were still at the stage of, you know, the the Beatles playing on four tiny amps to Shea Stadium and no one hearing a yeah. word of it, really. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then Lee, he went on to famously create uh, Electric Lady Studios in, in, in mm. the village. And speaking about It's Your World, that's where we recorded the uh, the line, oh, really? the, uh, the studio, the studio part of the album. Yeah, really? Oh, that's yeah. because I associate that studio every like neo soul record that was kind of, you know, fundamental to that movement was recorded at Electric Lady Studios, wasn't it? That's the year well, I associate it with. I didn't realize it's your world was. was that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We were, this, this is when it still had the uh, the, the pregnant lady form in the in the front. You know, Amazing. They, they since removed it. Yeah, that that bump. I was that was a not, There was nothing like that. There was nothing else like that in the village. Yeah. When you were going around at that sort of time, and uh, you know, having you know, because like you say, there's this incline as as things start to go well for you, and suddenly you're playing bigger venues and all these sort of things. Are there other points like when you find yourself walking into somewhere like that where you can, you know, you, you really feel like you're on hallowed ground. You're, you're kind of, you can feel the ghosts of the people who played in the studio before because a place like that has had so many amazing things happen in it. I just, I mean, it must be inspiring just to walk into the place. Absolutely. And as well, um, when we were recording Pieces of a Man and Free Will, recording at uh, RCA Studios, I mean, all of the great... Uh, you know the the great artist that that must have recorded in that in that studio. Sometimes uh, I I was just actually I was just uh, recording. Uh, I was doing some some work with um Sean Lennon, and uh, up in up in his studio up upstate New York, and uh, just so I was playing a a little um, electric electric organ on one of uh, one of the pieces that we were we were recording, and. Uh, he comes in during during the break, and I'm I'm sitting there with a glass of wine, and you know I'm kind of noodling on the on the organ, and uh, he says, you know, you know, my my dad, that was my dad's organ. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Jackpot. <laughs> I had to, yeah, I mean, I had to fall, I had to fall off of my seat without dropping the wine on the, you know, on the organ. Don't spill the wine. That's Eric Burton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the words of Eric Burton. Yeah. <laughs> when I mentioned the the fact of like you know feeling the the sort of ghost of the past, I mean it doesn't get much much better than that. I don't think that's that's. No, it funny. doesn't. No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's happening now? So so obviously you know the album is 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 out and it's all full steam ahead and the first single is out. Are you? back on tour are you coming to the uk what are your what are your plans now i can never not come to the uk you guys are, have always treated me have treated me so well and uh as soon as i as soon as the opportunity arises which i believe will be sometime in the spring um yeah i'm 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 Slide, we we were slotted to do it last year, mm, uh, last amazing. fall. We would we were slotted to do it the fall before then, <laughs> um, but I think that uh, yeah, I think this I, I think we'll probably be back in tr on track around the around springtime. So oh, yeah, we'll I'm definitely there. looking forward to that. Absolutely, yeah. that'll be. Will that be Jazz Cafe? I I don't know. I I really don't know for for now. You know, I hope I hope so. Uh, I'm just thinking uh, about uh, what websites I have to refresh. <laughs> That's what's on my mind now. Basically, this is going to be a what goes round sort of, uh, you know, office party. We're, 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 we're going to come oh, see you. Right, oh, Jackson. you totally, totally. It would be great to see you. you're all yeah. invited. 
Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Brian. Honestly, I don't know how you've managed to stay so humble, given all the incredible music that you've made. But it's it's just such a joy to chat to you. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I I really appreciate all your support. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I hope you well. I'm excited for the album to to release in uh, on August sixth, I believe it is. So uh, there's more coming. There's more good stuff coming. Amazing. Brilliant. Jazz is dead. 008 and uh yeah amazing i can't wait to hear more from it yeah well keep on doing what you you. do we love to hear it and i really look forward to seeing you hopefully in the spring same here same here thank you very much thank you brian Did you enjoy this podcast? Did you enjoy our chat with the legendary Brian Jackson? If you did, there's a little something that you can do for us in return to say thank you. A very little something. If you could find it in your heart to uh, like the podcast where you listen, to subscribe to it where you listen, even better to leave us a review as long as you like it, then uh, please go ahead and do that because really it helps us out so much. That's all we ask for. And if there's someone you know who you think would enjoy this podcast very much as much as you do please do spread the word and as always get in touch with us as and when you like we would love to hear from you it's what goes pod on twitter and instagram what goes pod at gmail.com and just to be obtuse it's what goes around podcast on facebook find us on any of those formats say hello send us a message send us an email we would love to hear from you and make sure you join us next week where another amazing guest will be sharing their photographic memories with us. Very good. A slight update though. You can now go to facebook.com forward slash what goes pod. Oh, well done.